Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, April 8th, we are studying Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 44. Having been sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate, Jesus goes to Golgotha, where he is nailed to his cross in the midst of cruel mockery. The scene is painful to watch, yet this is what the Son of God has done to reign as our forgiving, gracious King. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's always a blessing and a pleasure. Thanks for having me. As we get started this morning, Pastor Linnell, give us some context. We're here in Matthew chapter 27 in the midst of the scene where Jesus is crucified. What do we need to know going in? Well, uh, a couple of good things to remember about the Gospel of Matthew, just in general, is that Matthew is written uh, primarily to a, a Jewish audience, uh, people who know the Old Testament and who know the prophecies of the Old Testament. And as such, there's a heavy focus on Old Testament fulfillment, uh, fulfillment of uh, specific prophecies spoken of uh, by the prophets, and also a fulfillment of the, the various types of Christ and scenes that you see in the Old Testament. And not only that, but Matthew, written in a very Jewish style, is not overly concerned with chronology. So if you remember, the gospel is organized into five sections or topics called discourses. And those things don't necessarily flow like a story. Uh, they they try to a little bit, but they're just not overly concerned with making sure everything is in the order that it happened, but they're organized by topic. Now, the beginning and the end of the gospel, of course, are the birth and then the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But even as we get into uh, this section, uh, there are going to be some things and ways that it is structured that if you're trying to read it like a Western audience, you're going you're gonna to say things like, oh, well, you know, this came after this, came after this, and that's not necessarily the case. But we'll get into that when, when we see those things come up. In our immediate context, we have Jesus who is uh, about to be crucified. Jesus has already been on trial. Uh, he's on trial with the Sanhedrin. He went to Pilate. Matthew doesn't, you know, record all of this and having to go to Herod and to come back. But now he's, he's there again in front of Pilate. And he's already kind of had his trial with Pilate. And uh, verdicts have been pronounced. But Pilate is still trying to save Jesus. Um, Pilate had uh, his wife warn him, and she was warned in a dream or a vision. And so Pilate is Pilate's trying to kind of get out of this a little bit. And that's, that's where we start, is that Jesus is, is on trial He's about to be sentenced to death, but Pilate is trying uh, one last time to have him released. So, and, and our, our text today actually picks up right after Pilate has, 
has gone ahead and sentenced Jesus to crucifixion in verse 27. But but it sounds like in verses 24 through 26, that's some pretty key context that we we want to dwell on when Pilate actually says, hey, I'm innocent. His blood be on, on you and and uh, see, do it yourself. Sorry, that's what he says. And then they say his blood be on us and our children. So that sounds like going to be pretty key context moving into the actual mockery crucifixion that we'll see today. Well, that's, I think, a good a good place to bring up one of the things that we mentioned about Matthew and not necessarily being uh, as chronologically minded as we would like, right? Because one of the things that you end up with is, is much like you said. So we start at verse uh, 27, yeah? But would we be able to start reading at verse 24 and then read to the end of verse 31 and then pick up with that? We can. So are, are you are you suggesting that there's a little bit of chronological discrepancy here? Is that what you're what you're driving at? Well, I don't think it's a discrepancy. I think it's intentional. I think it's just the way that Matthew writes. But okay. you know, one of the things that you yeah. So um would you would you be kind enough? Would you want sure. to do that? Uh, yeah. read what I'll do to the end of yeah. I'll read twenty four through thirty one then and, and I'll let you talk about maybe the order of these things and then how they how they relate to each other. So this is Matthew 27, beginning at verse 24, going through verse 31. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. That takes us up through verse right. 31. So, Go ahead, Pastor Lyle. Yeah, so the way that that reads in English, it sounds like it's a, 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 you know, first come, and then, you know, this is what happened, and then this is what goes. But one of the problems that you end up with if you're reading that kind of in the English and you're comparing this to some of the other Gospels is if you look in John chapter 19, that's not the way it's presented. In John chapter 19, you have uh, Jesus uh, there before Pilate, and Jesus took, and so it says in uh, chapter 19 of John, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And uh, it comes right after uh, him being, uh, or Barabbas being released. So I guess it's, so it's John chapter 18. He says, after um, he had said this, Pilate goes back outside and told the Jews, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you after Passover. So you do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and then they go through the whole thing about him being mocked and beaten and everything else. And then Jesus has another conversation with Pilate, and then Jesus is taken out before the Jews, and, uh, and they say, no, no, we want him crucified, right? Uh, away with him, away with him, crucified. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar, and so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So which one is it? You know, is it that Jesus was, you know, sentenced to be crucified and then he was beaten and mocked and flogged or was he beaten and mocked and flogged? And then finally, Pilate saw that he was not getting, away, you know, getting anywhere. So he delivered them over to be crucified. Um, 
Well, uh, it's not really a problem. Uh, see, Matthew presents himself as sort of a uh, a second book of Genesis, right? He's a Jewish writer. He begins his gospel with the you know the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's the Genesaos of of Jesus Christ. You know, that's what and that's how Matthew presents things. And so, if we're going to make that comparison, take a look at the book of Genesis. In the first chapter, you have the description of the creation of the world, right? Well, then what's chapter two all about? I mean, it doesn't follow in a chronological fashion from chapter one, but it goes back and it gives more details about day six. Well, in the same way here, what you have is uh, Matthew giving you kind of the story and then backtracking a little bit to give you some more details. And then so, you know, Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was taking place, he took water and washed his hands and he did all these things. Then he released for them Barabbas, you know, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And so you've then got this mocking part that comes in. Well, the, the mocking part, it doesn't come in afterwards. You know, it's it's part of that. It's part of the scourging and the mocking, and it's it's it goes together as part of Pilate's plan to present Jesus to the Jews as really an ineffectual, nothing king. It's not that big of a deal, you know, and so uh, those things go together. He's kind of backtracking, right? Because we know that Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Uh, Pilate is a brutal guy, but he's uh, he's not sadistic, right? He's a sociopath. He's not a psychopath. He doesn't just kill people because. But he has absolutely no re- or no problem brutalizing people if he thinks they deserve it. But Pilate doesn't think Jesus deserves it, and Pilate is certainly not going to be a pawn of the Jews. He despises the Jews. And so when they're coming up and they're like, hey, we need you to do this for us, he's like, I'm not your errand boy. Go do it yourself. But Pilate, uh, even though Pilate, you know, and, and he thinks, Pilate thinks that Roman justice is above the petty politics of the Jews, Pilate knows that he is not above Roman politics. And the Jewish council knows this too. Pilate wants to free Jesus, but they've put him in the position, the council has put him in the position where if he frees Jesus, there's going to be a riot. And you know who doesn't want to deal with Jewish politics more than Pilate? Rome. Rome doesn't want to deal with this. And Rome isn't going to deal with this. And if Pilate gets in trouble because there's a riot and he can't, you know, Pilate's going to end up in trouble. So Pilate wants to free Jesus, but he's already tried sending him to Herod. He's already tried his own interrogation, and and he's already tried to assuage the, the fears of the Sanhedrin in saying that Rome is not worried about this guy being an insurrectionist. We're not going to come in and destroy you all because of this loser, right? Um, he's he's tried forcing the Jews to choose between Jesus and an actual murderer, uh, an actual uh, seditionist in, in Barabbas. And Pilate is just running out of options. Um, you know, but if the Jews want to invoke Rome, then fine, he says. I'll give them a taste of Rome. And uh, so he has Jesus mocked and brutalized. And this is, again, it's part of his plan, right? So uh, uh, in any event, if you if you don't have it that way, then what is actually the point of having Jesus brought inside the praetorium and mocked? Like, you just lead him away to be crucified. Pilate doesn't want to deal with this. And and the scriptures have told us that Pilate doesn't want to deal with this. He's already washed his hands of this, but Pilate didn't just walk away and then leave the, 
you know, the, the soldiers to come up with this on their own. This was done on orders from Pilate because you don't let soldiers just do their own thing. So when soldiers do their own thing, that they, they get crazy, at least, you know, and especially in, in these particular times, right? You always need leadership. That's, that's sort of a thing. So, no, uh, when you read through this, it's not a thing where you say, um, you know, he was sentenced to be crucified and then uh, they did this mocking thing for no apparent reason. Um, and, of course, there is a reason to it in a theological sense, but for them, just doing it to be, to be sadistic. Uh, Pilate had ordered this, and the reason Pilate ordered this was to present him back to the Jews, having been scourged and mocked as absolutely no threat in an attempt to save Jesus' life. So verses 27 through 31 provide some of the backstory that fills in what was happening in verses 24 through 26. What, what's the point of Matthew doing it this way? I mean, you mentioned how he's, he's redoing Genesis. It's a similar thing in Genesis 1 and 2. But, but what's, what's the point that Matthew's driving at by putting this, this part of the account after what he's already recorded about the verdict? Yeah, so one of the things that Matthew does, I think, that's that's really helpful is he he separates things out so that we can take a look at them uh, and learn from them uh, as as pieces. Right. So if if you were to write this as a big, long story, then that's great. But this isn't a novel. It's a it's a uh, and it's I mean, it's not a, you know, a, a history book or it's not a, a, a diary. It's a textbook. This is a catechism, and it's, it's written for the purpose of teaching. And it's, it's harder to teach if you write something out in this big, long thing, and then you have to go back and take out individual pieces and talk about them. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we have a catechism, right? Because when you want to learn about baptism, the Bible teaches a lot about baptism, but sometimes it's difficult to constantly be flipping through pages and to see these passages. So we, we take them out of their context a little bit so that we can teach them. And then, and then when you go back and you read them in context, you, you get a fuller view, right? And in the same way, Matthew does this when he's writing, so that what you can do is you can get the gist of the story, right? All right, so Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. He said that he was innocent of the man's blood. He released Barabbas, and then he delivered Jesus to be crucified. Okay, now you know what happened. Now let's talk about some pieces, because these pieces show us really important things, and they need to be taken out and discussed individually. And that's, that's what Matthew has done throughout his whole gospel. That's the reason it's organized into five discourses. Matthew gives us these sections as opportunities to engage them uh, out of their context a little bit. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It it does. So what are those important things in this scene, verses 27 through 31, the mockery of Jesus that was happening at Pilate's orders in an effort to free Jesus? What are those important things that Matthew wants us to get from this scene that he's isolated for us? Right. So one of the things uh, that we're carrying over from uh, our our last broadcast is this sense of irony. Um, just this, uh, it's a, it's a painful and really, really potent, just uh, almost, I, I want to say cringeworthy because, you know, we know what's going on, but the people arguably who are doing it don't. Um, and so there's this intense sense of, of irony in that. 
everything that they're doing to, uh, to mock Jesus and everything that they're saying has this, this double sort of purpose and meaning, and it's actually true, even though they're saying it sarcastically or they're saying to mock. Prime example of this, which you guys talked about in your last broadcast, is when the Jews uh, say, uh, his blood be upon us and on our children. That's a horrifying statement. That's absolutely terrible, scary, except that's actually what we want, right? And so in the context of what's going on, like you almost double over just in, in, you know, in fear, uh, thinking about what these, what these, these Jews in the council have said. But at the same time, you also kind of go, man, that's, isn't that, isn't that why we bring our kids forward to be baptized, you know, to be washed in the blood of the land? That's exactly what we want. And so in the same way, you know, you, you come over here and you see that these soldiers are, uh, they're, they're mocking Jesus. So let's take, a, let's take a look at some of these things, right? So it says that they, they gathered the whole battalion before him. They, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on him and they put a reed in his right hand. And they knelt before him, and they mockingly said to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Right? Now, what does that sound like? What sort of event does that, does that sound like if it was in a different context? Kind of sounds like the coronation of a king, right? Right. That's what it is. Like, it's actually, it is actually the coronation of Jesus. Right? So when you, when you look at these things... Um, Everything they say is true. This is actually the coronation of Jesus as well. Like it's, it's not that, you know, Jesus endures these indignities and then later on is glorified. This is the glory of God because these are the things for which we glorify him. He, he is earning all of these things with the very blood that, that he is shedding and has, has shed. He's actually being crowned king here, and he's actually being hailed as king here, and he is actually being pronounced as king by the highest earthly authority, the representative of Caesar himself. And so, you know, when, you, when, we, when we look at these things, right, because that's, that's kind of the difference, you know, between, say, a theology of glory and a theology of the cross, right? Do you see the glory of God? In, in, you know, Jesus being this, you know, heavenly splendor figure, glowing with light, coming down, immune to all of the things? Or do you see the, the glory of God in the sacrifice, this horrible, you know, uh, terrifying, brutal sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? And, and we would say that, that actually the throne of God is there, you know? The, the crown that he wears is not some shiny golden, you know, ring of light and halo, but it, it is this crown of thorns. And it fulfills all of those things in the Old Testament, you know, these types and images and things that we see. I mean, all the way back to, you know, all the way back to, to Isaac and Abraham and, you know, that sacrifice. And then they find the sacrifice and the caught with its horns in the thorn bush. You know, all of these things, these, these things come together and they are fulfilled in here. And what Matthew does is he brings this out and puts this aside so that we can, we can take a look at this and we can kind of uh, sit and marvel, as the Bible might say, that all of these terrible things that are happening 
are actually are actually true and you're you're witnessing the coronation of Jesus he gives special attention to where Jesus is is in essence crowned as king and then what's going to happen next is they're going to do their their procession so you know you don't crown the king on his throne he you know the king is given his crown and he's coronated and all of these other things and then he marches up to his throne to be seated on high well that's what the procession of the cross is going to be so um so there's there's a lot of this um and again they are trying to mock him you know forgive them for they know not what they do which comes from a different gospel but they don't know what they're doing but that's actually what's going on here if you want to see where Jesus is crowned with glory and crowned as king of, you know, the world, it's it's actually here in this this section where he's being mocked. Mm. You you mentioned as you were talking, that was a wonderful description. You mentioned a distinction that is sometimes thrown around and I don't know that we've talked about it much here on Sharper Iron, at least not not in the Gospel of Matthew. A distinction between a theology of glory and a theology of of a cross. And and I think that distinction is going to be helpful not only with what we've just looked at, but as we move forward on the after the break to look at the rest of the text. Can you can you just give us a basic explanation of what's the difference between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross and how that is helpful to us here in this text? Yeah. So um a theology of glory is going to um to look at glo- look at God in his in his um, his holy otherness, sitting in heaven, uh, holy, righteous, apart, uh, far beyond where we can reach and we can touch, and and that is where they are going to try to know God. But a theology of the cross is going to to know God and to see God where He has revealed Himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and specifically uh, in Jesus uh, coming not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In those things that are uncomfortable to look at, in those things that are considered foolish to the world, and in those places where God looks as if he is defeated, is his victory and his glory found. And that's, that's the difference. This has some practical applications, because if you see Christ and you look at him in sort of a theology of glory, then you are always going to try to meet him there, which means you're going to try to make yourself and present yourself as holy and righteous, and you're going to try to reach out to him in this untouchable glory. But if you see him and you understand him through the theology of the cross, then that is where you will try to meet him. And you will bring to him not your holiness and righteousness, but you will bring to him your brokenness and sin. And you will uh, glorify him uh, not so much in uh, uh, how other and awesome he is, but in, in how forgiving and merciful and gracious he is. So how, how would we then meet him today, very practical applications. How would we meet him today in this theology of the cross, bringing to him sin, brokenness, instead of meeting him in the theology of glory? All right. So uh, to give a couple of examples, let's, let's take a look at, say, the way that, that we would view the sacrament of the altar. In the sacrament of the altar, what, 
what is the, the primary purpose of that sacrament? Well, it's the forgiveness of sins. Yeah? The forgiveness of sins and the, the life and salvation that we receive. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. But that's not what every uh, person teaches or every uh, religious group or denomination teaches. There are those that um, might hold up the sacrament, uh, hold up the, the consecrated bread, and put it up and worship it and pray to it and and see that in these things and being in the presence of God, you sort of get this uh, you, you get this benefit from being there. There are those who would teach that in the sacrament, Christ does not come to you, but you are elevated to Christ on high. And both of those things we would reject. In the sacrament of the altar, we come to him with uh, repentance and contrition, um, but also with trust that he comes to us he descends and condescends to us, coming through space and time from the very cross itself into our mouths with his, his body and blood. And so the difference might be that there are those who would approach the sacrament feeling that uh, they are elevated or that they need to elevate and be worthy themselves. And then we might teach that... Uh, Christ is the one who comes down to us and that we don't bring to him, you know, we don't have to, when you talk about being worthy, you know, what does it mean to be worthy? Well, it, it means to have faith in these words that is given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And, you know, while that might seem like an internal difference, it is an important difference. You know, do we approach God constantly trying to be good enough to meet him where he's at or does God approach us to try to bring us out of this valley of sin and death? When you come to church, it's going to be the same sort of way. Are we coming to church to praise God and to glorify him? I mean, certainly, but is that the primary reason? Is the primary reason that we gather in church so that we can tell God how awesome he is? Or is the primary reason that we gather in church so that we can receive the forgiveness of sins and then return to him thanks and praise because of how awesome he is for forgiving our sins. These are important differences that, that exist between us and perhaps other denominations. They affect the way that we worship and the way that we see our relationship with Christ. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO, looking at Matthew chapter 27. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, April 8th. We're looking at Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 44 with Pastor Sean Linnell of Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. 
Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we looked at the first couple of verses, the scene that Matthew highlights for us of the mockery that happened to Jesus, that although the soldiers didn't realize that what they were saying was true, in fact, it was true, that we are seeing our Lord crowned as king. And the scene continues through our text. So we're going to pick up again in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 27. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. That's the remainder of our text for the morning. Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 44, the whole thing. Starting there in verse 32, Matthew introduces us to someone we haven't met yet, his Simon of Cyrene, the one who is compelled to carry Jesus' cross. Tell us a little bit about this man and, and why he's highlighted here. So, I mean, it is, excuse me, it is kind of interesting uh, in the Bible, there are people who are recorded who who do some really important things, but we, we don't know a whole lot about them. There's some tradition, uh, you know, that that says um, Simon uh, has uh, two sons who become very prominent leaders in the church, but that's not that's not recorded in Scripture. But it's it's what the tradition says, you know. So basically, uh, Jesus is tasked with carrying his own cross out of the city. Certainly the Romans aren't going to carry it, right? That's beneath them. Uh, but Jesus is not really in a position to be able to carry this huge beam. Now, uh, it's, probably, uh, it's probably the cross beam. It might be the whole thing, um, but it's probably the cross beam. So the, the cross, um, it wouldn't have been uh, uncommon for the cross to be sort of in two parts. Right, you've got this big cross beam sort of thing, and then one post that is sort of permanently stuck in the ground. Um, it, if you like the image of him dragging the whole cross, that's cool too. Uh, there's nothing that says that can't be the case, but might very well just be the cross beam. Either way, if you've ever tried to carry a railroad tie, those things are heavy. Uh, if you have been up all night and you haven't eaten or drank anything, and you've just been beaten. And not just beaten, but also scourged. And what scourging means uh, is that they whip you, and not with rods like the, the Jews might use, but when the Romans whip you, they take these you know, leather straps uh, with a, a small handle, and on the end of these straps are pieces of bone or, you know, or metal that dig into your flesh. And he would have been uh, whipped, scourged with this, such that not only would the, the leather part uh, cut his back, but the little pieces of bone or metal or whatever they would be would actually dig into the flesh on his sides, and then as they pulled it back, would have would have 
caused just vicious lacerations. That's a lot of blood loss. Uh, in addition to the crown of thorns that's put on your head, you know that you know head wounds bleed a lot. He's probably lost a lot of blood. He's not physically able to do this. And so as they're going out, uh, Simon, uh, who is probably not uh, coming in from the fields or anything, but is just a, a random Jew that they found, uh, and they, the Roman soldiers thought it would be pretty humorous to make this Jew carry the cross. They thought that it would be humorous because, of course, carrying uh, this cross, uh, they would have seen this piece of wood or whatever it is to be unclean or to be accursed. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So it really would have been just this um, uh, really kind of denigrating experience to, for Simon to have to carry this cross. But again, that's, that's part of this ongoing irony, right? Is that in what Simon probably thought in the moment was this thing that, uh, that brought him low was actually a thing that would be the honor of his entire existence. Forever, Simon is going to be remembered, not for any of the other things, but he's going to be remembered for his proximity to Christ. And Christ in the cross, Christ in his, in his lowest, sort of, lowest sort of moment. Um, and so uh, one of the things that we talk about in confirmation class is that uh, Jesus uh, doesn't ever use uh, miracles to help himself. It's sort of this, we talk about his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. Jesus, according to his human nature, goes through this state of humiliation, which begins at his incarnation, but is not a result of his incarnation, and extends to his death, or maybe you want to include his burial in that. But what that means in his state of humiliation is that he goes through all of the same hardships that we go through, and he doesn't use his, I'm going to you know, use this highly technical term, I'm going to call God powers, to help himself. More appropriately, we would probably say that he doesn't communicate any of his divine attributes to his human nature uh, for his own personal benefit. Um, that is not to say that he cannot, because of course he can anytime he wants, and he does. He does use his God powers uh, to help out others. And he does use or communicate his divine attributes to his human nature for the purposes of making his own life harder. And this is one of those cases. How is it that Jesus is physically able to do this, to carry on, to get through without passing out from blood loss or exhaustion, or just from being beaten in the head so many times? Well, he, he won't let himself die until it is the right time. And so all of these things that he's suffering through, it's almost a supernatural level of endurance that he's able to go through. And it's not like he's enduring without struggling. He's just enduring without dying until it's time. But Simeon comes along and carries the cross, and then they go out to this place called Golgotha. And when it says that they went out, it was the whole cohort, the whole Sanhedrin that comes out with them. The Sanhedrin obviously didn't go into the Praetorium. And so when they're coming, talking about coming out, they're not coming out of the Praetorium. They're coming out of the whole city. And the, the Sanhedrin is marching along with them. And they get there to this this place which is called uh, Golgotha or the place of the school and they offer Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. Now uh, in one of the other gospels they'll call this myrrh, uh, gall being just sort of a general term for, for the agent and also describing its bitter taste or its bitterness 
but myrrh being the specific uh, chemical or the specific substance that they put in there. What this is designed to do is it's designed to uh, kind of drunken you up a bit, but it's not designed as a mercy for you. The reason that they want to drunk you up a bit is because they're going to nail you to a cross and they don't want you wiggling about. It's there to make the job of the, the soldiers easier, to make you more compliant. If that happens to mean that you live a little bit longer or you don't, the soldiers don't really care. They just don't want their job to be hard. But Jesus refuses to drink it, which kind of goes along in theme with what we were just talking about. Jesus doesn't allow himself to take any reprieve. He doesn't allow himself to, you know, go into shock and, and not feel anything. He doesn't allow himself to pass out. He goes through all of it, even if that requires a, you know, a supernatural intervention for him to suffer beyond the point of any normal man. But then I want to I want to kind of point out look at how look at how simply and how uh uh quickly or or abruptly he describes the crucifixion. Matthew. He just says and when they had crucified him. Like that's it. He doesn't he doesn't go into any sort of description. He doesn't want us to sit there and focus on the things. He just he he mentions that so succinctly. Um, and then moves on for us to uh, to consider some of these other things. And I, I've always found that to be uh, rather curious in Matthew, you know, because I don't I don't know about you, uh, Pastor, but I mean I've had services through Holy Week where we maybe spend a lot of time focusing on how terrible, you know, being crucified was. Have you ever done that? Well, this, this does come up in Bible class, especially when we talk about crucifixion, and, and especially ever since the movie The Passion of the Christ came out and the, the physical violence that, is, that was all involved, particularly in the crucifixion. This is something that, that has been on people's minds. Uh, but you're right, it is, it's striking how little time Matthew actually spends on the crucifixion itself. I think I think one of the things going on there, um, and this is just me talking, is that I think if we look at some of the other things, some of the events surrounding uh, the crucifixion are given a lot more time, because I think that those events show us the fulfillment of of promises and types and the like. But the crucifixion itself is the fulfillment. I don't think that Matthew wants us to focus on all of the details of the crucifixion. I think that in this specific instance, Matthew just wants us to focus on the crucifixion itself as the fulfillment, not, you know, oh, well, he's, you know, did the nail go in his hand or did it go in his wrist or did it go into two feet or was there just one nail or was there all the things? I think he'd just prefer us to say he was crucified. And in that specific instance, that's the point. But but I don't I don't know, um, but that's I guess what I'm going to go with today. So um, as they as they continue, you know, there's there's a number of other things. Uh, them dividing up his garment and, and casting lots for it. Uh, this again to fulfill uh, Old Testament scripture, Old Testament prophecy. And then it says, then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge which read, "This is King of the Jews." There's two things I want to briefly touch on in that. Notice that Matthew kind of does it again here in not stating things in a, an overly chronological way, right? 
So when they had crucified him, they, they divided his garments among him by casting lots, and then they sat down and kept watch over him there. That's sort of the end. But then he goes back and he describes some other things. He describes the mocking. He describes, you know, being crucified with robbers, one on his left and one on his right. Matthew kind of gives us this succinct story. And then he goes back and he highlights events that uh, illuminate for us how that short story fulfills, or I say story like it's not true. Of course it's true. But, you know, how that short account fulfills uh, Old Testament prophecy and how it teaches us and shows us things. So um, they, they cast lots as this is Old Testament prophecy. They put the charge over his head, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, right? So Pilate does this and, uh, and puts this charge up there. And the Jews really hate it, right? Because they're like, no, 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 no. You know, that's, he said he was King of the Jews. But this is Pilate's little jab back at them, right? And while Pilate doing this as, uh, from Pilate's perspective to jab at the Jews, it's true. It's true. And this here on the cross is his throne. You know, it's not Jesus being up there by accident. It's not even Jesus being up there and, and this is some terrible, humiliating thing. I mean, it, it is. He's up there. He's, he's naked. He's bleeding. He's, he's dying. It's just, it's the most awful thing. And yet that is his glory. That is his throne. Christ is seated on his throne right there on the cross. This is where he rules from his kingdom. This is the, the, the place from which he reigns, the place from which forgiveness and grace flows. And so this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, uh, again, this, this sign and this thing, it would have been put out there um, uh, so that everybody who came into the city, everybody who didn't know, everybody who hadn't been around would come in and they would see this. And what, a, what an amazing witness, Right. Um, because everybody who comes in, they're not going to have any context. And that's kind of the point. So if you don't know what's been going on and you're coming into Jerusalem and you see this guy out there, the king of the Jews, what's your initial impression going to be? Well, he obviously upset Rome, but you're going to understand him to be the king of the Jews until somebody tells you otherwise. So Pilate was right to put that up there. And it's very true. So then you got this thing, right? Two robbers are crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And here we have another sort of, uh, I'm going to put discrepancy in quotes with some of the other Gospels, right? Um, because you, you have these two robbers that are with him, one on his right and one on his left. And then I want to skip down to the kind of the bottom. Uh, it says in verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Pretty sure that the story goes one of the robbers was making fun of him and the other one had faith, right? I mean, is that the way you remember the story? That's the way Luke records it for us, yes. So how is it that both of them are mocking him? Well, I don't think it's actually a discrepancy. Uh, Matthew doesn't focus on the the testimony of the one particular robber, but I mean, it, it actually makes just a lot of sense if you take a look at kind of the way people are. Uh, so you've got two robbers that are crucified there with him, one on his right and one on his left. And, you know, one of the robbers probably has a, a pretty sarcastic and crass sense of humor. And everybody's up there mocking Jesus. And they're like, you know, hey, you know, you did all of these things. Why don't you save yourself? And you probably got one of the robbers who's up there and he's like, so, you know, Jesus, they kind of have a point. If you've got any of those like Messiah miracles in you, it would be really helpful right now. 
And then you've got another robber who's not trying to be silly or sarcastic or make levity, but who's actually attacking Jesus and be like, why are you talking to him? This guy's worthless. Look at him. He's like, you know, and, and probably a lot worse things that, you know, I can't say on the radio. And in the face of that sort of uh, hostile response and mocking, the other robber probably responds and says, hey, dude, what's wrong with you? Don't you fear God? Like, we're up here because we deserve it, but this guy hasn't done anything wrong. Look, yo, Jesus, whenever you come into that kingdom of yours, man, how about you remember me, yeah? Um, And, you know, sometimes we read, I think, the stories and we forget that they're real people, Um, but they are. And I think, uh, you know, uh, if it was me uh, up there, I would probably be trying to make some sort of joke or something. And joke or not, it is a bit mocking. It is irreverent. But you, you, I would, I would pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't be the guy that you know is is hostile and uh, and and aggressive in that way. And I think that in the face of that sort of thing, a lot of times people will back off and they'll be like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa hold on." And I think that's what happened here. It, it's not a it's not a contradiction. Matthew just decides that that's not the part that he wants to focus on because he wants to focus on the mockery that comes from the Sanhedrin, and it comes from uh, from the soldiers. And so you you see that right. Let me let me just uh, real quick, did... Pastor Linnell, just before you before we leave the two robbers, because I, I think you're I think you're exactly right in terms of the way that Matthew and Luke do not contradict each other. But even even to highlight the point you were driving home earlier, even more, why does Matthew not choose to relate that? Well, having one robber on Jesus' right and one on his left. I think further serves to to emphasize the irony that is true that Jesus is in his kingdom at this moment. Remember back in, in Matthew chapter 20, where the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes to Jesus and asks for one of her sons to sit on Jesus' right and one to sit on his left when he comes in his kingdom. And here you've got two people, not James and John, two robbers sitting on the right and on the left of Jesus when he's coming as the king of the Jews. So I Anyways, I just wanted to make that that comment. I think it I think it fits very well with what Matthew's doing if we if we see that in that light. It also fits with the mockery of the the Sanhedrin, the chief priests. Go ahead. Yeah, no, and I and I think that that's also really important. And then also, you know, the, to go along with that. I mean, these people are not, you know, remembered for, you know, their whole life whatever good or whatever bad that they did but they're they're remembered for their proximity to the cross. I mean, this is sort of their legacy, which goes along with Simon of Cyrene and the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. And and that is sort of the difference, you know, between, again, that theology of glory and the theology of cross and the, the intense sense of irony that fits in. All of those things flow together really well, and it continues. Um, it, it continues when, um, you know, when he's being mocked by others. Yeah, and so you, you have him... Uh, up there, and those it says those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. This is not people who are passing by walking into the city. These are the, the Sanhedrin that have come out, and we know this because they said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If, if you're coming into the city on some sort of pilgrimage or something uh, because it's Passover, you have no idea what Jesus has been doing, and so you're not going to know to mock him about this specific thing. This, these are the people who, either the Sanhedrin or the people who were there at the trial of the Sanhedrin, because that was the charge that was brought against him. And so they're just bringing that charge back out, and they're mocking him again 
you know, with that. And again, one of these terrible irony sort of things is that, you know, they're talking about tearing down the temple and, you know, rebuilding it in three days. He's doing that. And so it's, uh, it's again, um, it's, a, it's a very true statement. They say, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. This is very reminiscent of the phrase that the devil would hurl at Jesus during his temptations, if you are the son of God. Um, and the thing is, is, of course, uh, he could, but if he is the son of God, then he won't. Um, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. You know, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. But of course they wouldn't. And this is one of the things, because what they're, what they're saying, right, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Um, one of the things and the points that they're, they're trying to drive home is that he didn't actually save others. This thing that they're claiming in this mockery is that, remember, anytime Jesus does a miracle, uh, he first forgives the sins of that person. The reason that he's able to heal people is because he has the authority to forgive their sins. This is brought out nowhere perhaps more prominently than when Jesus heals the paralytic that's dropped through the, the roof. And I know that's not a Matthew story. There's other ones. But, you know, he says, uh, son, your sins are forgiven. And then people get all bent out of shape. And he says, so that you know that the Son of Man may have the authority to forgive sins, you know, take up your mat and walk. All of the miracles are that. All of the times that he heals people and say, he is saving them. Not saving them from their, you know, their deformity or their, their disability, but saving them from their sins. Everybody understood that that's what he was doing. And so here on the cross, when he's dying as this, this terrible, unrighteous death next to some robbers, what they're mocking and they're saying, look, he claimed that he could forgive the sins of others, but if he was so sinless, then he wouldn't be in this position right now. And so that's, that's one of the things that they're claiming. And again, the terrible irony is that they're saying, you know, he saved others, but he can't save himself. If he saves himself, then he doesn't save anybody. That's the whole point, is that, the, you know, he doesn't save himself, and that in so doing, he saves, he saves us all. When they get to this point down here, you know, and they say, let, us come down, let him come down now for the cross, and we'll believe in him. If he comes down from the cross, there's nothing to believe in. And that, again, is sort of the point. What they want is for him to, to not be who he is. You know, or one of the things, and this goes back to our theology of glory and theology of the cross, right? They want to see God in a theology of glory. They want him to come down off the cross. They want to see power that serves itself. They want to see glory that glorifies itself, because that's what they think God is. God is a God who holds himself up and who won't bother to come down to us lowly sinners who are mired in guilt and shame, who are, are, are you know, uh, slaves to death and sin, who are, are lost. No, no, no. This God is holy. He sits up and he demands that we raise ourselves up and be good enough for him. That's the theology of glory. But, but what is Jesus really there to do? What does he really come to be? This is the theology of the cross, and the, the great irony is that they are, they are standing right in front of Christ who is dying to forgive their very sins, and they're calling, out, they're calling out that he would not, that he would be a God that is so other that they could never reach him, but he's come down to them. And that's the great you know, comfort for he says, you know, 
He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. You know, God, Jesus trusts in God the Father as a son trusts in him. And he is forsaken so that God might deliver us, so that we might, you know, be desirable, so that we might be called sons of God in and through Jesus. Man, when, you know, Matthew separates these things out so that we can, we can take a look at them and we can we can see, you know, what's going on in these parts of the story and how they they point to what Christ has really done and who He is. I don't I don't think He describes the crucifixion because He wants us to focus on those things. The fact that Jesus died on the cross is in itself enough, but in all of these events that surround it, it 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 enlightens us and shows us what that really means. Uh, you know. Jesus, one of the things I think that makes us uncomfortable as we're, we're taking a look at, at Jesus and all the stuff that he goes through is that it gives us a glimpse of ourselves. Jesus didn't come to be king of all the good, righteous people, but he came to be king of all of the miserable, violent, murderous, vulgar sinners who are even now his enemies, even now mocking him. For while we were still enemies of God, the enemies of Christ, he died for us. So what sort of coronation, what sort of crowning and what sort of throne do we expect a king to have when he rules over people who hate him so? But also, what do we expect from a king who loves his people so, except to endure it that they might be saved at the expense of himself? Pastor Sean Linnell is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 44. Pastor Linnell, thank you for your time today. A pleasure. Thank you. Our Lord Jesus Christ was truly crowned on the cross. This is his coronation, not for his own glory, but for the sake of sinners. He forsakes his divine abilities in order to win salvation for you and for me. And though the people there at the cross didn't know what they were saying, what they were saying is true. Here, Jesus reigns as king for you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.